0: Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Acts chapter 3, Acts 3, we'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read through chapter 4 verse 12. The topic uh, for the sermon is, is, who is Jesus? That's uh, the, the next line in the Apostles' Creed as we've been working through it. I believe in Jesus the Christ. Uh, so we want to think about, who, who is this Jesus? What does this mean? And here in Acts 3 and 4, we find some of the most uh, primitive, if you want to call it that, uh, some of the earliest confessions of who is Jesus coming from the Apostle Peter. So Acts 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So far from the Book of Acts. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm fifty-seven, Stances one, two, and five or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior, Jesus. No, though they boast of Him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. So far the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for the last several weeks we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, uh, which as I've mentioned a few times is the oldest and the most basic summary of the Christian faith. Uh, I made a point of reminding you in just about every sermon, almost ad nauseum, uh, that our purpose in this study uh, is so that as we engage ourselves with the Word of God, we would ultimately grow in faith towards maturity, uh, growing from a faith that understands uh, to a faith that is lived out and practiced uh, as, as in the Christian life. Uh, that is, in fact, why we have an afternoon service It was something the Reformers uh, instituted so that we could study the basic doctrines of the faith with the purpose of growing towards uh, maturity. Now, so far as we've done this, we've worked through the Apostles' Creed. We've come to the doctrine of the Trinity. uh, And then the the two perhaps most fundamental doctrines of Christianity, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of God's providence. Uh, Those are our foundations from which we now, on which we now stand. Uh, starting for this week, and now for the next uh, several weeks, we want to take a very focused look at the question of who Jesus is. Should I keep going? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, so we're looking at the question of who, who Jesus is, Um, And we're going to spend several weeks on on this question. Who Jesus is, and then what he has done, what he currently does, and what he yet will do. So past, present, and future. Uh, And the bulk of the Apostles' Creed is devoted to to these questions. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And what yet will he still do? Uh, Those are the, the, the primary questions this creed is all about. Uh, This, this, I should mention, is a wonderful opportunity, then, if there are any guests in our midst uh, who may be new to the Christian faith, or young people uh, who are pondering the Christian faith and and saying, do I believe this? Is this something I I want to live? Uh, This is a good place to start, uh, asking the question, uh, who is Jesus? What is Jesus all about? What do Christians believe about their Savior, about Jesus? Uh, It's also an opportunity for all of us, including older uh, members and and more mature members, uh, to to challenge our own assumptions. We we make assumptions about who Jesus is, uh, to challenge those and hold them up against the light of God's Word. Who does God say that Jesus is? Uh, So that's where we want to begin. Uh, We read earlier from Acts 3 and 4, and I chose those uh, texts because they provide one of the oldest confessions of who jesus is as i mentioned one of the most primitive confessions you have uh, the apostle peter a brand new christian now being confronted with with the jewish authorities on on his teaching about jesus and he has to to tell them who is jesus he has to explain it to them uh, himself being a brand new uh, christian uh... Of course, he does that with the gift of the Holy Spirit, with the wisdom and conviction the Holy Spirit gives. Uh, so that's what we find here in Acts 3 and 4. Uh, it began some days after Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray, and they encountered this man who was crippled from birth. Uh, and as they were about to go into the door of the temple, this man asks them for, for money, and it says, Peter fixed his gaze on the man and said, look at us. Uh, as I tried to picture this happening, uh, probably this man was so used to begging uh, that he, he didn't even make eye contact with the people. Is a sort of, you see it sometimes in the street as well, people just uh, asking for the money without even looking at anybody's, uh, without making eye contact. Uh, but Peter stops him and, and says, look at us. And so he does. He looks at them and it says he's expecting in that moment, uh, that they're about to give him some money. Uh, but Peter says, I have no gold or silver, but what I do have I give in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then he took his hand, pulled him to, a, to his feet, and God healed the man's ankles and feet. Uh, so it says he leapt up and beginning, uh, be, beginning to, to walk, he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Uh, And there were people there who saw the whole thing uh, happen, uh, who were also uh, praising God, recognizing this is the man we've always seen uh, begging here at the entrance of the temple. Now, that gives Peter the opportunity, having mentioned the name of Jesus, healed this man in the name of Jesus. It gives Peter the opportunity uh, to now proclaim the name of Jesus. So he says in verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And then he proceeds to preach the gospel to them, uh, that Jesus, whom they crucified, was the promised servant of God, the Messiah, uh, was raised from the dead, and that it was by his power this man was healed. Uh, Now, what I want to focus on is his application. So he says this is who Jesus is. Uh, God raised him from the dead, um, and it's by his name that this man was healed. And now he has the opportunity to drive the point home, to make an application. And he does uh, in verse 19. Uh, His application is not, uh, now therefore confess the name of Jesus, and you too shall be healed of all of your physical ailments, as this man was healed of his. You might expect that. Uh, This name of Jesus is apparently powerful enough to heal people. But that's not where Peter goes. Instead, he goes to verse 19 and says, uh, Repent therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, and, And again in verse 26, he says, God raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning you from not your physical ailments, not your diseases, not your weaknesses turning you from your wickedness. So what's going on there? Uh, Peter heals a man of physical ailments, then turns around and says, Now you too repent, believe, and you shall be healed, not of your physical ailments, of your sins. Uh, uh, what, what's going on here is that Peter had just come to learn in the weeks since Christ had been crucified and risen from the dead, he had himself just come to learn who Jesus really was. Was uh, all the way through the Gospels. The Gospel Luke really portrays this, uh, as does Matthew. Uh, Peter was clueless about who Jesus was. Uh, there's that uh, classic episode of where uh, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and God says, or Jesus says uh, to him, "Blessed are you, Peter, uh, for that was revealed to you not by man but by God." Uh, and then Jesus says, "And now I, I'm going forward to Jerusalem to be crucified and killed." And Peter, shocked, turns around and says, "Uh, No way, that should never happen to you. Uh, And that's where Jesus says, uh, Get behind me, Satan. So Peter has this amazing moment where he's blessed by God to tell the truth. And then the next moment, he's led by Satan into the completely wrong idea of who Jesus is. That was Peter all the way through the gospel. That's why after Jesus uh, was uh, was crucified, and, and even after he rose, you find Peter where? Proclaiming Jesus? No. Fishing. Uh, Saying, I don't know what else to do. In fact, uh, Luke records how that's exactly what they said uh, they would do. They said, uh, we don't know what else to do, so we're just going to go fishing. They didn't know who Jesus was. Well, here in Acts 3, Peter finally gets it. He sees who Jesus was. uh, and, And he realizes Jesus came as a Savior but not to save me or us from the things that we thought He was going to save us from. He's not here to save us from our poverty. He's not here to save us from Roman, uh, Roman occupiers. Uh, he's not here to save us from illnesses uh, of the body. But rather, the thing for which He came and died and rose was to save us from the sin and wickedness of our hearts and all the misery that falls, follows from that. Uh, he'd come to learn in those few weeks after Jesus' resurrection and after Pentecost, that's my greatest need for, for Jesus, a Savior, who will save me from my sins. And that's then the message that he goes and preaches to the people after, after healing this crippled man. Uh, he doesn't say, now Jesus will save you too from your crippling ailments. No, Jesus will save you from your sins. What's, what's uh, important about that is that's the name that Jesus was given and the reason for that name all the way back in the very beginning. Uh, the, the name Jesus literally means Savior. It's from the Hebrew word uh, Yeshua, the Hebrew name Yeshua. Uh, that means God saves. Uh, which immediately, of course, begs the question, saves from, from what? And the angel Gabriel, speaking to Mary, said it explicitly. He will save, you shall call him Jesus, For he will save his people from their sins. Right from the beginning of the gospel, the angels declared that's who Jesus is. Peter and the other disciples all the way through didn't get it. Now Peter finally sees it. Uh, So now after Christ had, had risen and ascended, Peter finally understood that the name of Jesus means the one sent by God to save me and us from all our sins. So as we think about this this, uh, confession, we want to ask ourselves the same question. Uh, What does the name of Jesus mean to us? If the apostles, the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years completely missed it, completely misunderstood who Jesus was, uh, could it be that people today miss that as well? Could it be that we... Miss that as well. Uh, who is Jesus? You'll find many different answers in the world, uh, and even within the church. Uh, there is the Jesus who saves us from poverty. Uh, you go to Brazil, you'll find the name of Jesus everywhere. He is the Jesus who saves us from poverty. You'll find his name on bumper stickers, on the windows of people's houses. Uh, and, and it is to many like a talisman. You confess the name of Jesus, you stick it on your car, and, and, and that will cause blessing. It will bring uh, blessing to you, bring riches and success and, and safety. Who is Jesus? A very different Jesus in South America. Well, what about here in Canada? Uh, for many, uh, for our politicians, for sure, uh, the name of Jesus is a voting block. Uh, you need the name of Jesus somewhere on your resume. You need to be a Christian, even if it's just nominally. Uh, you need that uh, because that appeals to the Jesus people. It's a voting block. Uh, And the truth is, for for many Canadians and Americans, uh, the name of Jesus is is like a flag, a lot like for Peter, a flag around which to rally your political cause. There's the Jesus of the marginalized and the oppressed. There's the Jesus of the free market uh, on on the right. Uh, There's a Jesus for every political or ideological cause. Is that primarily who Jesus is? Uh, It's a fair question to ask, what does the name of Jesus mean to us? Uh, well, what Peter understood after Christ's resurrection, uh, and, and uh, you think also of the, that moment where Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples, opening the Word of God, saying, This is who I am. This is who the Scriptures said I would be. Uh, what Peter learned from all of that is that the thing from which all of us most desperately need to be saved is our own sin and the misery that our sin brings with it. Uh, we need to understand this as well as a Christian church, as a church that confesses the name of Jesus. Uh, the doctrine of sin needs to be preached here in this church. We need to, uh, if, we, if we don't speak of sin, we cannot properly speak of Jesus. Uh, there is no Jesus uh, but the one who came to save us from our sin. Uh, and so when we, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, as we do every week, and we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're not just confessing a name, we're confessing an identity. Uh, we're confessing a, a, a cause for which that Jesus came. Uh, and, and it's not to liberate us in the first place from poverty, from racism, from oppression, uh, from the other evils that we might want to use the name of Jesus to fight against. It is, first of all, to save us from our sin. Now, it's not that the Jesus doesn't care about all of those things. Uh, they, they are relevant to him. The kingdom of Jesus does have implications in all of, of those areas. But Jesus came sent by God to address the source, the root of all of these evils, which is sin, which is the brokenness between us and our God. Uh, Before that's healed, nothing else will ever be truly healed. Uh, The source of the misery of this broken world uh, is the guilt, shame, hatred, and hostility of the human heart against the God uh, from whom uh, he is alienated. Uh, the, the judgment, and, and with that, then the judgment that faces us when this life is over. Uh, so, Jesus saves us from our sin. Now, when we say that, it's good to recognize that's true on two important levels. Uh, he came to save us, first of all, from the guilt of our sin. Uh, that's, that's what he died for, to carry the guilt of our sin with him to the cross, uh, so that guilty sinners like you and me could be forgiven and brought before the presence of God. This is important uh, because there are many movements within the Christian church that deny that Jesus came for that purpose. They will say he came to to give an example of what it means to lay down your life in love. uh, Or he came to give an example of what it means to obey God. Or he came to to testify to the holiness of God. But they reject that he came to satisfy God's wrath. Uh, No, Jesus came to save us from our sins, including the guilt. Of our sins, uh, you think of Isaiah uh, fifty-three. Our transgressions were laid upon him. Uh, that's what he came to do, and without that, nothing else that he would have done would have ever mattered. Uh, rescuing people from poverty, racism, oppression, uh, or anything else, only to deliver them to the eternal wrath of God is is a fruitless, a pointless mission. Jesus came to make us right with God. Uh, so he came to save us from the guilt of our sin. He also came to save us. This is what Reformed uh, Christians often overlook. He also came to save us from the corruption of our sin. Not just the guilt. Uh, we, we often speak of Christ on the cross. Uh, but there is also the Christ of the resurrection. The Christ who came to deliver us from the ongoing death of that lives within us, the corruption of our sin. Uh, To put it another way, I explained it this way to the catechism students, and that's when the light bulbs went on. Uh, He came to save us not only from what we've done, but also from who we are not just from what we've done, but also who we are. It would be an equally useless mission for Jesus to save guilty sinners from hell only to, in, in order to bring them into heaven with all of the hostility, hatred, anger, and bitterness still there on their hearts for them to spend the rest of eternity hating God and hating one another in the presence of God in heaven. That, that too is a fruitless, uh, pointless mission. So Jesus came to save us, not just from the guilt by which we deserve hell, but also from the corruption uh, by which we've alienated ourselves from God. Uh, When you understand this as Peter clearly understood it, then you recognize nothing matters more than this. There is no Savior that we need more than this Savior. There's no kind of salvation that we need more than that salvation. There's nothing that the human race needs more than Jesus. And there is no one and nothing that will ever save us from our guilt and from our corruption but the Lord Jesus. There's nothing else. That will ever make us right uh, between us and God besides the blood of Jesus. Uh, There's nothing that will ever rescue us from the hostility, hatred, anger, bitterness and evil of our hearts. But the blood of Jesus by which we're made at peace with God. Uh, so for Peter and for John, as they were going to the temple to pray, and as they afterwards went to preach the name of Jesus, uh, it, was the recog- it, it was that recognition and that conviction that that's the Savior we need, that's the Savior our people Israel need, and that's the Savior the Gentiles need. It was that conviction that emboldened, the, emboldened them uh, to put their lives at risk to go and preach no matter what the authorities were going to tell them. Uh, in chapter 4, we read about how they were arrested for preaching the name of Jesus. And the chief priest demanded to know, uh, by what name, by what authority are you, are you doing this? Uh, how, and they, they asked him, uh, by what name did you heal this man who was lame? And, and Peter says to them, look, if you're asking by what name we healed this man, it was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, uh, and then, uh, just like before, instead of talking about the healing of that man, he immediately goes on to say, And this Jesus, you crucified, you killed, but God sent him to deliver us from our sins. Uh, so he says it again uh, verse uh, at the end of... Uh, of, of uh, In verse 10, he says, uh, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which we must, uh, given among men, by which we must be saved. That is the heart, brothers and sisters, of the Christian faith. There's no other name by which we must be saved, and there's no other salvation that we need more. Uh, salvation from our sinful condition and all the misery that comes with it, including especially the judgment of God, can be found in no one else. Jesus said it himself, I am the way I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. Uh, There is no other path to forgiveness, no other path to restoration, no other path to healing but through the name of Jesus. Well, that's the the pure gospel then that we want to remind ourselves of over and over and over. Uh, And we need to be careful uh, to remind ourselves of it well. It's very easy to preach that gospel to to share that gospel with others while at the same time undermining that message by saying, uh, but there are other ways to God as well. or uh, But uh, God also wants you to be a certain kind of person without which uh, you cannot uh, be saved. Uh, There are many, many self-described Christians here in Ontario who are convinced that uh, though Jesus is the Savior, nonetheless, God will accept them on the basis of what they've done. You ask them up front, why do you think you'll be saved? Because I go to church, because I pray, because I tithe. Uh, That is not why you will be saved. Uh, That is not why God loves you. God loves you because of the blood of Jesus. Uh, And that's why there's a second question in this Lord's Day that's directed uh, straight against this kind of mentality. Uh, Now, at the time the Catechism was written, that was especially directed against the Roman Catholic Church uh, because of of its appeals to other forms, other kinds of of salvation. Uh, And and that's why there's this this mention of prayer to saints. Uh, So the question is asked, uh, do those who who seek their salvation or well-being in saints themselves or anywhere else still believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer is, is no. Uh, This is about the Roman Catholic Church and hasn't ceased to be true at all, even today. After 500 years, the Roman Catholic Church continues to teach uh, the same things it did then. Uh, So the the Catechism is not at all overstating the case when it says, no, they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Uh, The Roman Catholic Catechism describes this uh, doctrine as a treasury of merit. Uh, This is the words they use, uh, which is to say there's the storehouse of worthiness by which we're saved. Uh, We need to be saved by the worthiness of others. And within that storehouse of worthiness, that treasury of merit, there is the merit of Jesus... And there's also the merit of Mary and the other saints. And if we are to be saved, we must draw from that storehouse of merit. Uh, And and so they they do admit that uh, the the worthiness of Jesus is infinite. The worthiness of the saints is finite. uh, And yet you must draw from all of it together. Uh, Now, it... That in itself is an interesting thing. If you're willing to admit that Jesus' worthiness is infinite and, and all of our human worthiness is, is but a drop in an ocean of the worthiness of Jesus, why do you spend so much time appealing to that drop in the ocean when there's so much else to, to appeal to? Uh, but even more seriously, this entire system undermines and invalidates the gospel message all Together. Because what does Peter say Uh, here in the very beginning of the Christian church? What does Peter say? He says, Salvation is not to be sought, uh, excuse me, salvation is, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Period. Full stop. That's it. There's no other name. Uh, So either the catechism is right. Either Jesus came as the only righteous Savior sent by God to deliver unworthy, unrighteous men from their sins, which is clearly the conviction of the apostles here, or He's no Savior at all. If we were capable of adding to a storehouse of merit such that we had our own worthiness to contribute, Why in the world would God send Jesus to die on a cross for our sins? Uh, There is salvation in no one else. If there was some other way that we could be saved or some other merit that could contribute to our salvation, would God have sent His only beloved Son to die on the cross uh, for us? In other words, if Jesus is the kind of Savior that God's word says he is, then we have no business looking for salvation anywhere else. Now, one final thing on this, on this point. The catechism also speaks of those who look not so much for their salvation, but just for their well-being uh, in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else. Uh, now that, that is there because uh, in that day and, and still today, people would pray to the saints not only for forgiveness of their sins and, and matters of salvation, but also oftentimes for earthly blessings or success. Uh, that's, in fact, that's what predominates in these prayers to saints. Uh, this is why you get patron saints, which are uh, saints that are, that are designated in the Roman Catholic Church as, as special protectors, special guardians over particular areas of life. Uh, they're, they're like heavenly advocates uh, in that area to whom you can pray and, and expect to receive blessing. Uh, so, for example... Uh, you'll get St. Anthony of Padua, who is the patron saint of people who've lost things and can't find them. Uh, so very, very particular uh, specialties that these uh, these saints uh, specialize in. Or St. Joseph, the patron saint of people who are selling their home. Uh, to your real estate agents, uh, keep that one in mind. Uh, or or St. Benno, the patron saint of, of, of fishermen. Oh, or this is my personal favorite, uh, St. Arnold of Soissons, uh, the patron saint of beer brewers and hop pickers. So uh, there's, there's specialists for, for everyone here. Uh, now, you might laugh at that, as, as we do, and, and, uh, and yet nonetheless shrug your shoulders and say, what's the big deal? Uh, so people have these, these special guardians that they want to appeal to. What's the big deal? Does that really undermine their their faith in Jesus? As long as you're not looking for salvation from them, what's the big deal for looking for these earthly blessings? Uh, well, the reason the Catechism objects so strongly to this practice and just lumps it together. With those who seek their salvation elsewhere and calls it all a denial of the saving work of Christ, uh, is because uh, it's still rooted in the same brokenness and hostility to God. That practice is rooted in that just as much as prayers for salvation to any other creature. Uh, Let me explain that. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray to whom? To the Father. Uh, In addition, the Lord Jesus promised us, ask and you will receive. And he said further, your heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to those who ask for them. Well, if that's the case, if that's what relationship with God your Father looks like after being covered by the blood of Jesus, uh, then you have to ask the question, why would someone direct their prayers even for earthly material blessings direct their prayers to anyone else to a saint when they could pray to their father who loves them in the name of Jesus the son that he has sent Uh, you have to ask the bigger question what's going on there why would you pray to a saint instead? And what's going on there is there's an absence of relationship with God the Father or a brokenness of relationship with God the Father that leads people to look for their blessings somewhere else. You talk to any Roman Catholics and, and this comes out after a few minutes of, of conversation. Why do you pray to a saint? Uh, well, because there's, you know, I don't feel, you know, God the Father's busy with with lots of other people. I don't know that I'll get a voice heard. So I go through a saint. Uh, why? Why do you pray to a saint? It's because you do not trust in God the Father, or because things are not right between you and God, your Father. And that, then, working around Jesus through the intercession of these saints, is a denial. Of the only saving work of Jesus. On top of that, it's idolatry. Uh, It doesn't take a genius to recognize that this practice of praying to particular uh, patron saints is virtually indistinguishable from the pagan, the ancient pagan practice of praying to certain gods. Uh, Just as Baal was the god of fertility, or Athena was the goddess of handicraft and wisdom, or Eros was the god of of love, or Poseidon was the god of the sea and sailors would pray to, to him. Uh, And and all these gods were the means by which pagans, alienated from God, would seek and find their earthly blessings uh, and and their heavenly support. So many Christians, self-described Christians today, unreconciled to God, seek their their well-being through these saints. It's a practice that's indistinguishable from pagan idolatry. Uh, it's, it's the idea that says my own relationship with God is not that good, uh, but if I can pray to a saint, he or she can intercede for me because they're closer to God than I am. That's a denial of the saving work of Jesus. To whom did the Old Testament saints pray? You think of the 150 Psalms. To whom did they pray? To God the Father. Uh, did they pray to the deceased prophet Moses? Moses. Not once, nowhere, ever do you find that in Scripture. Did they pray to their father Abraham, certainly a saint if ever there was one? No. They directed their prayers to Yahweh through His temple on the basis of the blood that was shed there to make things right between them and God. That's the only way to the Father. Uh, So we Christians, too, are taught to direct our prayers to the Father through the temple, which is Christ, on the basis of the peace bought for us there at that altar. Now, I mention all of this uh, not just so that we can all feel self-satisfied and thankful that we're not Roman Catholics and we don't do that that funny business, uh, but rather so that we might give some thought to the ways in which perhaps we do some of that funny business. Uh, The question is, do those who seek their well-being in themselves or anywhere else also believe in the Savior Jesus? So let me ask you, where do you seek your well-being? Now, I'm not saying, of course that you don't use the earthly means that God has given you, uh, whether that's to fortify your business, to to bless your health, uh, to to help your family life or your emotional life. Uh, God gives us means for these things. But I am saying that if it's true that as we confess that uh, if, the Lord, if it's not the Lord who builds the house, then the laborers labor in vain. Uh, if that's true, then that laboring is... If, if you're not looking for the blessing of the Lord and you're going to labor anyways, that laboring is not only fruitless, it's actually idolatrous. Because it's saying, I will get my results without needing the Lord's blessing. Uh, those earthly means then, that, that we are free to use, those earthly means end up becoming substitutes by which we pursue blessing that we refuse to seek from God. Uh, James uh, says it as well in James chapter 4. He, he asks the question, what causes all these fights and quarrels? And, and he says, are they, are they not the desires that wage war within you? Uh, and, and why do you have these desires? Because you don't ask. Why don't you ask? Because things are not right between you and God. And James' conclusion is, he says, you idolatrous people. So where do we seek our well-being first and foremost? Do we seek it in a relationship of peace restored between us and our Father who loves us? Or do we first go to ourselves or somewhere else? That question can be asked of us as well. Uh, So, not only our salvation, but also our well-being is ultimately given to us by Christ. And in fact, that's what we confess, isn't it, in the very first Lord's Day of the Catechism, uh, where it's asked, what's my only comfort in, in life and death? And we answer that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only paid for all my sins with His precious blood, that's our salvation, but also, it goes on, uh, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Uh, where do I go to, to, to get that preservation uh, from, uh, that, that the Father gives me? If I'm artificially, uh, by my own strength, without seeking the Father's blessing, uh, trying to make sure that not a hair falls from my head many of you have lost that battle already. Uh, But if if we are working uh, for what what God should give us and working without seeking God's blessing, We're not only working in vain, we're working in a way that is idolatrous. My clinging, my striving, my turning everywhere else, my worry, my anxiety becomes for me a form of idolatry and really does amount to a denial of the work of Christ if I don't believe that my Father loves me and that my Father uh, is restored to me. Uh, Jesus came to restore us to the Father and to make all things, all things well between us and our Father. What that means is you can pray to God as your Father who loves you as His precious child uh, and cares for you and will provide all good that you need from Him. Now, brothers and sisters, this, this really is good news. Uh, it may be convicting news because we often don't go to our Father the way we, we should if we believe that all is well between us and our Father because of Jesus. Uh, but it is good news because that is the gospel promise. It simply means stop striving. No, no. That all is well between you and your God, that the tender love of the Father has been bought for you, has been given to you uh, such that you don't need to seek it uh, and fight for it and strive for it. It's yours because of the blood of Jesus. And, and that means that everything necessary, both for your salvation and for your well-being, is given to you by your Father in a richer measure than you could ever get for yourself. And so you are called, uh, you are called simply to trust Him And to follow him as your father in thankful service. Uh, As Jesus said, uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Yes, in God's time. Yes, in God's way. uh, But in perfect measure. Uh, He cares for you. You are his children. Uh, So going back to our our topic from from last week on on God's providence. uh, Why is it that you can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future have a firm confidence uh, in, in our faithful God and Father that no creature will ever separate us from His love? How can you have that confidence? Because the blood of Jesus poured out for you has made everything well between you and your Father. So don't look anywhere else. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Hymn 64.